So family is kind of a loosey-goosey term in our household. In fact, I can remember several times that Eliana, our eldest daughter, she's 10, has stopped us and asked clarifying questions. You see, my kids have five sets of grandparents. Now, partially that's because there is divorce on both sides of the family, but also because of Mimi and Grandpa Herb out in Utah. And Eliana, she's asked, uh, are they actually our grandparents? We say, yes. Are they literally your or mom's parents? I said, no, but they're your family. And see, this is because uh, Brianna's parents got divorced when she was in high school, and her mom joined forces with another single mom, a young woman named Kimberly, in her 20s that was herself raising a young daughter by herself after some family crisis. And, and these two single moms that loved the Lord decided to join forces, and they, they shared a house, and they shared expenses, and they began to raise their kids together as a single family unit. And that was nearly 20 years ago, but the faith and the fires of those years truly forged us into family. I say us because I was 17 when I started pursuing Brianna, so I was there for a good chunk of it. And since then, Terry, her mom, and, and Kimberly, they've both remarried lovely, godly men, but we are family. And at this point, when we try to explain this to Eliana, her questions start bubbling over. Well, then what about Uncle Russell? Is Uncle Russell really your brother? Is are Grant and Evan, his sons, really our cousins? Well, no, but yes. Our bond is this connection, this love, it's, it's for life. Okay, then what about Uncle Philip and Auntie Katie and their girls? Well, no, but yes. What about your aunt and uncle, um, the Lopez's that we had, we had Thanksgiving with every year when we were in California? Are they truly our family? Well, no, but yes. So like I said, it's a <laughs> loosey-goosey sort of a term in our household. And, and I really appreciate that one of the central metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe this spiritual community that we find ourselves in is family. Family is one of those key images that Scripture uses to describe this new group of redeemed individuals that Jesus is gathering around himself. And I don't know what all is contained in that word family for you, but I do know that our modern ears hear the word family different than someone who lived in Jesus' day. To the ancients, that word family was something deep and fierce to the point that the old Olive Garden slogan of when you're here, your family would be nonsensical to them. In the ancient Mediterranean world, group took priority over individual. 
These were collectivist societies, and, and a person's most important group was their blood family. And I'm not an expert on this. I'm taking most of this information from a great book called When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman. He teaches at Biola University. And he informs us that in that day and age, the closest family bond was not marriage, as it is in our culture, but the bond between siblings. He writes this, For marriage in Mediterranean antiquity, no consideration at all was given to the relational satisfaction or compatibility of the bride and groom. Everything with marriage had to do with the status and the preservation of the family as a whole. So where then did a person in this society find emotional support and solidarity, if not in the marriage relationship? Well, it's this, the most intimate, nurturing, highly charged, and ultimately satisfying relationship for people in the world of Jesus was the bond between blood brothers and sisters. See, they're living in a wholly different cultural paradigm from us. And the central value that characterized family relations in in Jesus' time was this obligation that you had to show undying loyalty towards your own siblings. In the ancient world, nothing was more treacherous than betraying a brother or sister. Blood was thicker than water and even more potent than one's marriage covenant. And I want to share all this with you because as we dive into this encounter with Jesus today in the gospel of Mark, we need to know this because without knowing this, nothing that he says about family will seem wondrous to us. So like I said, if you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 3. And we're going to start off in verse 13, which is the very conception of this spiritual community when he first calls the original 12 apostles. So we'll pick it up in verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Notice that it is Jesus that brings the community together in the first place. It's Christ's gracious call. It's Jesus' desire for us to be with him that gathers us together. Even before we're invited to join him in his work. And the community, if you were to keep reading the next couple verses, you'd realize that the community that he's gathering is unnatural and unexpected. It includes brash, blue-collar fishermen. It includes a violent revolutionary. It includes a hated, collaborating tax collector, a, a doubter, a thief. Folks from across the kind of economic and social and moral and ideological spectrums. Jesus was bringing together these strange bedfellows into a new community. Then we fast forward a few verses to verse 20 in this same chapter. And Jesus is with his new crew, but suddenly uh, they're beefing with the Jewish religious leaders. 
And there, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of blasphemy, of, of using demonic power to perform his miracles, and they threaten to take legal action against him. And we pick up the narrative in verse 20. Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So what's going on here? Well, these are serious charges that carry death sentences. Although the Roman authorities didn't allow the Jews to actually enforce capital punishment on their own, but nonetheless, Jesus is at risk here. He's getting on the wrong side of the people of of power, and his family decides to close ranks. Their family loyalty has been triggered, and they will at all costs seek to protect and defend their brother. And a little side note on Jesus' family at this point. His stepfather, Joseph, is, is very likely dead at this point. We don't know the story, but he seems to have not be in the picture anymore, which would make Jesus the oldest surviving male. Thus, kind of if you want to use the fancy sociological terms, he's the head of this kind of patrilineal kin group. He's the It's now his responsibility to provide leadership for and to defend the honor of the whole extended family on Joseph's side. And so with eldest brother in trouble, mama and Jesus' little brothers, they join in the fray to save the family. And it was often in this society that even if someone was accused of serious crimes, they could be shielded from prosecution if they were declared mentally incompetent. And yes, that kind of public declaration would bring humiliation on the whole extended family, but it's a cost that Jesus' brothers are willing to pay to save the head of their family. To secure the family's future, they say, we will bear any shame. But in light of this, what seems like a sacrifice on their end, Jesus' response is almost scandalous. We read this in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called to him, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He's looking at his chosen disciples and the the rabble that has gathered around him. And he says, sorry, mama, sorry, hermanos. This is my true family. My primary allegiance is to them and to the will of God that we are joyfully chasing after together. It's a shock. It feels like an insult. It feels like an affront to ancient family values. 
And Jesus actually really puzzles us here. We thought he was family friendly. Is Jesus family hostile? How are we supposed to characterize him? Where does he fit into our binary? Is he pro-family? Is he anti-family? He's confusing us. And honestly, some of what he says about family, it was deeply offensive to his original hearers. And honestly, it grates against our ears as well. Just listen to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. This is uh, Matthew eight twenty-one through 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What do we do with that? But on the other side, we hear him Elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, he rebukes the Pharisees. He rebukes the religious leaders for what he says, you're spiritualizing your callousness towards your own families. He condemns this little clever scheme that they've come up with so that they can dance out of providing the funds that are required to care for their parents as they age. And this is his rebuke of the religious leaders at the time. Mark 7, 9 through 13 And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you have said, if a man tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is is Corban, is dedicated to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. He says you have this clever spiritual scheme where you say that money's for God's purposes. I can't help you, old man. He's like, no. Jesus is defying our attempts to categorize him because what he's really doing is he's redefining family for us. When we say that Jesus saves, there are so many facets to that truth. He saves us from, he saves us for, he saves us out of, he saves us into. Let me explain that. He saves us from our sin and our brokenness. He saves us for communion with himself. He saves us out of the domain of darkness where evil and death reign And he saves us into his new spiritual community. He saves us into God's redeemed people. He adopts us into his family. Think of Paul's words in Romans 8, 16 through 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. When Jesus rescues us, we're baptized into the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this new belonging becomes the defining feature of our redeemed identity. God's family becomes our primary group, our core allegiance in this life. And friends, this is good. Paul continues in in Romans 8, 28 through 29. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. We're saved into this family, and God graciously invites us to call him Father. And Jesus, he, he deigns, he condescends to play the role of our older brother. Remember the cultural context. He's taking upon himself the responsibility to provide leadership for and to defend the honor and to secure the future of his growing extended family. And I love how it says in Hebrews, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He's just not saying, hey, bro. He's saying, I am pledging my undying loyalty to you. I'm saying there will be no closer bond than ours. But what's true for him in this family is also true for us. He says, I intend to be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. So yes, that means that the, the rabble of sinners saved by grace that you see sitting around you They are now your newly minted sisters and brothers in Christ. With the same bond implied, the same loyalty expected. Who is my family? Jesus asks. Whoever does the will of my father, whoever turns and receives the rescue of my grace, whoever joyfully chases after God with me. That is my mother, my sister, my brother. And a little later in the gospel, Peter approaches Jesus. And this is what we read in in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. We are truly A family. We're bound to one another in real commitment. And our fates, it seems, are bound up together as well. And he says, life won't be easy. In this world, we will have trouble. But we are in this together with Jesus. 
And we're in this together with one another. And our future is bright. As I look at my own life, I feel like I can agree with Jesus and say that in my family of faith, I've received back from the Lord a hundredfold whatever I may have lost. You see, I was born into this large, loud, loving immigrant family. My family's all from Nicaragua. And I have sweet memories as a child of gathering and playing with my many cousins on holidays. But soon life got complicated. Divorces fractured our happy family. And as we assimilated into the culture, as faith became less central in many people's lives, as each individual started to pursue their own ends and ambitions, our once kind of tight-knit family started to disintegrate and scatter. Old wounds started to be unaddressed and, and they were left to fester unforgiven. Relationships grew estranged and folks started to uh, get emotionally distant from one another. And, and when my, our matriarch, when my abuelita, when my grandmother died, it became clear that a sense of our sense of family went with her. And now our family life's complex and at times painful, but still we navigate it. And I might be tempted to wallow in disappointment of what could have been. But in reality, I can't help thinking how blessed I am. God has brought into my life spiritual friends that are closer than brothers. And for as many aunts and uncles that I've grown a little bit distant from, he's brought in spiritual tios that invest in me and, and care for me and support me and encourage me and press me forward in the Lord. And it's not that Jesus is calling us to reject our families of origin. He's not demanding we walk away from our blood relations, but he's saying when I step into your life, all things become new. Even your sense of family, the old has gone and the new has come. And when we welcome Jesus as Savior, when we acclaim him as the Lord, the leader of our life, our primary allegiances shift to him and to his family of faith. It's not that Jesus is anti-family, but he does affirm that there are real life implications for what he's doing. He's bought us with a price. He's rescued us and now we're his and he calls us to honor God, not just with our physical bodies, but in this body. So what do I mean? Our priorities and our fundamental loyalties have shifted because of Christ's salvation. And maybe it's a little easier thinking about it outside of our immediate context Think of a loving or faithful son or daughter in a closed Muslim country like Saudi Arabia or Iran or Afghanistan. Say they meet Jesus through a squirreled in copy of, of the Bible in their own language or through kind of a, an underground 
recording of the Jesus film or through the costly testimony of a, of a, of a visitor or one of their fellow countrymen. Their conversion to Christianity is not only forbidden, but it would bring great shame and dishonor upon their family. Their parents would perceive this as defiance, as a slap in the face, as a shock and a rejection of all traditional family values. But their allegiance has changed. And when our loyalty to Christ and his family comes into conflict with the demands of our blood family, Jesus says we must choose Christ. Now for us, the choice is often not that stark or dramatic, but I see it nonetheless. Think of that man that we heard that said, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. Just let me bury my father first. Well, the kind of way that Semitic phrase works is it doesn't actually imply that his father has even died yet or that his death is even around the corner. What he's saying is, hey, I'm all in, but let me fulfill my duties as a son first. And after that, Jesus, you are first up on the docket. And this we actually see all of the time. Not to call out my own demographic, but we see this a lot with with parents who still have kids in the house. Jesus, yes, yes, you have my allegiance. I choose to follow you, but I need to give my kids my first and my best. And I know sports will build their character. I know that extracurriculars and those special tutoring sessions are required to get them into the right colleges and to secure their future. And really, they each need their own rooms to thrive, so I need to work more so that we can have a bigger house. So church, family devotions, discipleship, community, that will all come, Lord, as soon as the kids are out. Once we've launched them into the successful future that we are working so hard to secure for them. What did Jesus say? Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever tries to secure their family's future in their own strength will see their best efforts fail but whoever surrenders their family into the hands of Jesus and embraces Christ's way will discover flourishing in the present and in the age to come, eternal life. If Jesus was going to save himself, save his family's future and reputation, he would have had to abandon God's calling on his life. He would have had to spurn the cross and forego our rescue. And in that moment, his loyalty to God's will and God's family superseded his responsibilities to his own blood family. He was forced to publicly reject them and refuse their noble sacrifice. Didn't feel that noble. They were telling he was publicly crazy but to refuse what was for them a noble sacrifice 
on his behalf. But remember what Jesus taught us. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. And there's a beautiful corollary to this kind of scene of family division there in Mark chapter 3. And the, the corollary is the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. On that day, Jesus' spiritual family, his redeemed family, has gathered and they're about to experience an outpouring of God's power. His little ragtag group of, of misfits and rejects who's, who've been made new and made one by his grace, they're all there. They're about to know the full outworking of Christ's salvation in their lives as God's spirit comes to dwell within them. But if you read the beginning of Acts, you notice something beautiful. You notice that someone has become part of this spiritual family of faith. We discover that Jesus' mother and his brothers and his sisters, at least some of them, have been added to that number, to that new spiritual family. You see, Jesus had to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. He had to walk away from his family and his family's wishes, but God added them back. In truth, God was using Jesus to secure his own family's future in God's love, his, their future for all eternity. He had to lose his family to find them again safe in God. Now I know this has opened up a whole can of worms and and Jesus has taken us far afield as we've tried to plumb the depths of this metaphor. But Jesus wants us to know that in him we have been adopted into a new family. And yes, it has implications on our relationships with our actual families. It has implications on our loyalties and our allegiances, implications on the way we live our lives. But the metaphor is also revelatory. It shows us something profound about what life together in this community is like. We're a family And if we are really a family, that should alert us to our responsibilities to one another. It should alert us to what life together here ought to feel like. This is not a social club. This is not an affiliation of like-minded individuals. We're a family. And you may never have experienced a healthy, loving, or supportive family, but I'm sure you can imagine it. I'm sure you can have yearned for it in your bones, the affection, the care, the the gentleness, the long-suffering commitment, the loving interventions, the, the investment. Jesus says, that's what I'm forming among you, the family you've been looking for. And I want to end by just allowing you to hear the sort of family life that Jesus is inviting us to experience in his church as we each individually and collectively abide in his love 
and surrender to his spirit's leadership in our lives. Listen and let these words wash over you and stoke your desires because this is what life in Jesus's family is supposed to sound like. So I'm going to quote from the Apostle Paul as he's talking to these different wings of the family, first in Galatia, then in Thessalonica. But just listen to this family life that we have in Christ. And when you hear brothers and sisters, don't think of blood brothers and sisters first. Think of our spiritual brothers and sisters. So this is Galatians 6, 1 through 2 from the NLT. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is ensnared and overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. And then here's 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8. Paul writes, we were like children among you. We were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We, we love you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless towards all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you and encouraged you and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and his glory. Guys, we are a family, a new family in Jesus And he has saved us and he has made us truly into a family by his grace. And we're invited not to neglect the family we've been adopted into. Don't reject your newfound brothers and sisters. Don't spurn his invitation to be part of this family life. And I'm not claiming it's going to be easy. I'm not claiming that it's not going to be without its hurts. But God is at work here. His spirit and his grace are allowing us to pass from death to life, to love not only in words, but in actions. We are a family and he is our older brother. And we show allegiance to him by demonstrating loyalty and love to each other. And what did we hear? By our love and our commitment to one another, It says in scripture, the world will recognize us as his siblings, as his disciples. So our call to action is not to be affiliated. This ain't a group. This ain't a club. We're called to be family, to commit to Christ and to commit to his community. I had the chance this week to sit down with some folks that are pondering and considering membership. And we kind of beautifully just got to walk through Elam's membership covenant, which sounds all technical and organizational, but it's really 
If we're going to be family together, what sort of family commitments do we have? What does it look like to pray for one another? What does it look like to commit to reconciliation when someone says something or does something that rubs us the wrong way? What does it look like to be family in good times and in bad? And it was a beautiful reminder to me that that's what we are. We're family by God's grace. And we have this wonderful opportunity to be this renewed picture of family. And we won't do it perfectly, but by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, we will see the love and the belonging and the care that Christ extends to us through his people. So don't be affiliated. Let's be family. Amen? Dear God, there are so many names by which we call you. Father, older brother. Lord, these are are family names. You keep giving us more and more metaphors to reveal that while we were lost and alienated, we've been found and brought in, and this belonging by your grace changes everything, God. It is the new center of our existence. Thank you. Lord, we come and we know that some of us, we don't know how to live in a healthy family. We don't know how to stick it out, to reconcile, to forgive. Teach us your ways. Teach us our new family culture. Lord, if there are folks here that are on the outside and looking in and say, man, I want to be part of God's family, God. Let them know that the door is wide open. We didn't do anything to earn life in this family. You adopted us by your grace. All we've done is trusted in you and said, yes, save us. We confess we're far from God, God, and we allow you to adopt us. Your blood washed us clean. The power that rose you from the dead, Jesus, makes us new and brings us in. We say yes to your family again today. And hopefully some of us for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.